Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church. All right, you made it. I'm expecting a lot of attentiveness because it is actually 12:20. So maybe now you're hungry for lunch, huh? <laughs> this morning, I tell you, 8:45 was so alert. I'd never seen him like that. Like that whole extra hour. So good. All right, guys. Well, we're in our series through the book of Jonah. We're coming down to the last stages of it, the last few messages. And if you haven't been with us, the book of Jonah is this amazing little story. It's just four chapters, and in the average Bible, it like, you know, it's on one piece of paper, all right? And it's the story of God grabbing the hold of this crotchety old prophet, Jonah, and he sends him to go bring a word from God to a rival nation, the nation of Assyria. He sends him to the capital, right? So it's kind of like if God wanted someone from Israel to just make their way into Gaza or a Palestinian to make their way into Israel right now. That's the tension between Israel and Assyria. And uh, the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. And last week we looked at Jonah finally obeying God. He gets in line with God and he goes to Nineveh and he brings God's message. After fighting with God, running from God, resisting God, getting swallowed by a fish and everything. And he brings a message to God and we see the city of Nineveh actually, to our surprise, I think one of the biggest miracles of Jonah's book, the city repents. Actually, the city is like, hey, we're wrong. God, you're right. How rare is that? It's hard enough on an individual level, much less a whole city. Today, we're going to look at verse 10. You don't need to stand because it's just one verse. So just chill out and relax. And it's one verse. And I'm going to tell you why it's one verse. Because next week, we're going to look at Jonah's reaction. Chapter 4 is Jonah's reaction to this moment right here. But if we look at it together, you might miss this moment. So I want us to sit on one verse so we can just focus on the most radical idea of all that God is compassionate towards us. The radical love and grace of God. Look at this verse. Here we go. Today's verse. Jonah, chapter 10, or 3, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, Nineveh repenting, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. Oh, this is such an important moment to sit and dwell on God's compassion. What meaning would repentance be if God wasn't compassionate? You'd be turning to an angry God, but we're not. And that's what's so spectacular about this verse. We're going to meditate today on God's compassion, but first I want to review a little bit about repentance. Mark had this great line last week. If you weren't here last week, I want to quote him. Check out this line. He said, repentance isn't a one-time thing, it's a lifestyle. Isn't that a great line? It's not just a moment of saying, God, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. I want to line up with you. It's a lifestyle of daily, moment by moment, learning to align our life with God. And it is a lifestyle. I love that word, lifestyle. We repent today so that we'll be more free and able to repent tomorrow. That's why we get baptized. You know, when you get baptized, you're committing yourself to a lifestyle of allowing your life, your thinking, your perspective to be realigned with God's perspective, God's word, God's presence, God's truth. Are you with me? So we get baptized next week. 
We're going to be doing baptisms again on campus. Come on, isn't that a moment right here? Jen, our staff on the left, Candace on the right, giving her life to the Lord. And I want you to know that if you have never been baptized or maybe you were a baby, you were so young, it just wasn't an adult decision and you want to renew your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to come and get into the waters. Baptism is a sign of surrendering your life to the leadership of Jesus for him to be your Savior and your Lord. Maybe you raised your hand last week when Mark gave the message. 20 people from this room raised their hand that they wanted to repent and align with God. Maybe that was you, or maybe someone you know. I want to encourage you, consider getting baptized next week. All right? So that's for all of you. For those of you who are watching online, in the chapel, outside, you're all welcome uh, to consider that for next week. So think about it. But that's repentance. Repentance is, um, is the willingness to change our minds and agree with God. And it, it, repentance doesn't save us, but get this, repentance doesn't save us and make God more loving. It doesn't change God's attitude to us. Repentance is our change of attitude towards God. Repentance doesn't save us, but it opens our life to God's compassion and mercy to work in our life, in our favor, on our behalf. Could you use some of that? There's some area of your life where you need a greater sense of God's goodness working on your behalf. It may be that there's some repenting that you need to do, some realigning in your perspective, your attitude, your choices that would allow God to bring more of his goodness into your life. Well, we'll talk about that today and see where that might be true for us. Um, I want to show you guys um, this verse from Isaiah verse 30, chapter 30, verse 18, because today we're going to focus on compassion, the way that God moves in our life, and how it's his natural default. And I want to walk you through this verse right here. In Isaiah 30, 18, God is describing himself. So there's a lot of people out in the world telling us what God's like. Let's let God tell us himself. Are you with me? Let's let God describe himself to us right now. And he says this. Let's read it out loud together. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious. Okay, actually, you know what? Let's do this different. I didn't do this for a service. Let's, um, let's do this not in the you, but in the me. So let's personalize it. You with, you with me? You got it? Okay, here we go. Out loud again. Ready? Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to me. Therefore, he will rise up to show me compassion. Do you know God like that? You know, some of us are just get, find ourselves in life dominated by thoughts that are not compassionate. Thoughts that are exacting, perfectionistic. My wife has me listening to this podcast about perfectionism. Kind of helping me out a little bit. You know, where you're just constantly criticizing ourselves, which actually, ironically, has the power to keep us actually from internalizing hard truth for positive and change. Perfectionism leads us to condemn ourselves, right? And leads us to judge ourselves and to judge others. Maybe you need a greater sense of God's compassion for you in your life and in your thought life. And that's what we're diving into. And what I love about this verse is this idea that God longs to be gracious to us. That's his default. He's not, he doesn't say, yet the Lord longs to put you in your place. 
The Lord longs to judge you. And we're going to talk about judgment and how important it is. And yes, God does want to align you with him because the Lord longs to be gracious to us. Isn't that good news? So, um, we're going to talk today about this moment in Jonah, verse 10, and what it has to show us about God's compassion. All right, we're going to take it in two parts, this one verse. You're going to see how much is in it. Two parts. The, that God saw what they did. The idea that God sees us and that God sees the whole truth about who you are. Number two, when God sees us and we turn to him, he, it says he relented and what that means for our life. So let's talk first about the fact that God sees us. Here we go. Uh, verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, dot, 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 we'll stop right there. God sees Nineveh, and he sees this city, and he sees both the evil in the city. Now, that's hard, right? When you look at this verse, and you're thinking, oh, it's about compassion, but doesn't it say he's calling out their evil? And that's hard, because when someone turns and says, hey, I see some evil in your life, that doesn't feel like the most compassionate way to start a conversation. Are you with me? You know, when someone comes to us and points out some fault in us, it doesn't feel very loving. You know, we don't exactly jump for joy. Oh my gosh, thank you, Dad, for pointing out that lack of hygiene in my life. You're right. I should put deodorant on and shower once a day. We're not generally thanking people when they bring critique. We can personalize it. We can get defensive. Oh, I have a perfect example. So this morning I was talking about throwing a Hail Mary. I don't know why, but I said a Hail Mary. And my buddy was like, actually, it's Hail Mary. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. You know, when people come with, and he's a good friend of mine. It was super funny. And I was like, I'm going to use that as a joke. But when people bring critique, right, especially people we trust, it's easier to see it as condemnation and to get defensive. But God sees the evil in the city because evil is real, evil is in the world, and evil even is in our own life. And so God sees the evil in the city, but he also sees the faith of the city. Now that's important. He sees the two. He sees their faith expressed in repentance. God saw not just their wickedness, but that they were turning to him. He sees the whole truth about our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees us before we get our hair straightened. He sees us before we get our makeup on, before we get in the shower and we put on our best self. He sees us, the good. He sees us at our worst. And he loves us. And somehow God is like able to hold the two together. Now in this moment, we watch this whole city turn to faith. There's three miraculous moments in Jonah that are hard to believe. Number one, so when I told this church oh, we were going to do Jonah, people were asking me, oh, what are you going to do about the fish? That's so unbelievable, right? So if you don't know the story, Jonah is like in the water and a fish just swallows him whole and he's alive for three days in the fish. Um, and people were like, are you, what are you going to do with that weird moment? As miraculous as that moment is, this moment is even more miraculous that a whole city would repent and turn to God is even harder to believe. Think about how hard it is to imagine someone in your life changing, breaking away from addiction, or getting out of an anxiety disorder. It's hard for one life 
How about an entire city? And that's what happens to the city of Nineveh. They all repent, turn to God in this miraculous moment. When God's people get a vision of God's renewal that is bigger than the storms of the world, God's mercy can pour out on a city. When God's people get a vision of renewal bigger than our storms that we're facing, God can move through his people in miraculous ways. That's what happens through Jonah. Let's go to the slide. We've been talking about renewal through this series. This idea that we can be renewed personally, the idea that we can that when we allow renewal in our life, that people nearest to us can experience renewal and that it can actually result in entire societies, nations, and groups of people experiencing God in miraculous ways. When God's people get a vision for renewal bigger than the storms, bigger than the war between the Palestinians and the Jews, bigger than the conflicts in the culture wars that we see in our society, when we get a vision of renewal that's bigger, God can move through us. So I want to highlight your first next step. You ready? I got a next step for you, an application. One of the ways we stoke our faith in God being bigger, the God who sees the evil and the wickedness of the world, but God has a vision of renewal for our world that is bigger than the world's crises. Are you with me? When God's people get together and worship him, when they gather together, their vision for God gets bigger. So I want to buy you tonight at 6 p.m. We're not having service. We're having this thing called Encounter, and I'm representing right here. And uh, look at it, for God so loved San Diego. <laughs> tonight at 6 p.m., we're going to gather at the uh, amphitheater that's outside by the pier. And I took my son last year to this event. He was a junior in high school. And after we left, I was asking him, hey, son, how'd you feel about that event? He's like, Dad, I got to tell you, my faith just feels so much stronger. When I, every day when I'm at school, he goes to LCC. He's like, I'm not, really, there's not, a lot of, I'm not around a lot of Christians, you know, and my faith gets a little bit intimidated. But when I was here and we're out in the public, random people are walking by and driving by and we're worshiping God. I'm seeing all these people worshiping God from different churches. I just felt like my faith getting stronger and rising up, and it makes me want to be bolder about my faith at school. That's what I'm talking about. You see, God can look at our worst and never lose his vision of who we were made to be. God can see us in our worst moment and never lose hope about God's image and God's purpose for our life. And the same is true when he looks at our world. That's what makes God's compassion so amazing. He can see us at our worst and yet never lose hope in the best that God's put into us. His love doesn't blind him to our sin. He's not like with rosy glasses, you know, like when you're first dating someone, you're in love. You don't see any of their faults, you know. It's all good. But then after you, maybe you've been dating for a while, you've been married for a month, or after your best friend moves in as a roommate, maybe it's the rosy glasses come off, you know, and they're not washing their dishes. They're leaving their dirty clothes in the kitchen, you know. They're not putting the toilet seat down, stuff like that. God can hold our worst and our best together. Look at this quote by Tim Keller. He says this, he goes, uh, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. 
Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment. God's love doesn't blind us to our sin, but our sin doesn't overshadow his love for us. And neither does yours. And that's why we're taking a whole message to dwell on this, because if this is the way that God loves us as Christians, this is how he's training us to love one another. The ability to look at those nearest to us and see their worst and yet hold out hope in their best. And isn't that what marriage is for? Isn't the whole institution of marriage to put you with someone who's going to see you at your worst? That's the point of marriage. The point of marriage is not to realize you're more amazing than I realize. I can't believe it. I mean, you're even cleaner than I thought you were. You're even more organized and more unselfish. No, no, no. See, marriage is about allowing someone to see us at our worst. And it's the way that God allows you to see someone else at their worst so that you can learn to love that person the way that God loves you. And if you're not married, it's the same is true with our close friends, people where we really get to know them. Sometimes when we see people in their worst is when we want to walk out the most. But this is when God stands his ground. Now, there's a lot of situations in our life, and I'm not, I can't speak to all of ours, but I want us just to dwell on the way that God loves us, the way he maintains his commitment even when he sees us at our worst. Here's an example in the Bible of God doing this. Okay, I'll give you a personal example, Jesus and Peter. All right, so there's this moment where Jesus is talking about being betrayed and being killed. He's having his last dinner with his disciples, and Peter's like, Jesus, I will stand with you even though everybody else walks away from you. And I want you to see the moment when Jesus responds, right here, Luke 22, 33. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. Now, right here, Jesus is seeing Peter at his worst, and he sees it before Peter sees it about himself. So God sees the worst of Nineveh. He sees the evil. But that doesn't overshadow God's vision of his purpose for our life and the goodness and the love that he's put and invested in us. Because watch, later in John 21, after Peter denies Jesus three times and Jesus is brutally murdered, Jesus is having a barbecue on the shore waters. That's what resurrected Jesus does. He has fish tacos. The disciples are out in a boat and they're like, I think it's Jesus. They're freaking out. They, Peter dives in the water and he swims. He hasn't seen Jesus since he's betrayed him. He gets to shore. Jesus is grilling some fish and they're hanging out. And then Jesus says, hey, Peter, let's go for a walk. Step into my office. Oh, that must have been a nerve-wracking moment for Peter. And so he goes for a walk with Jesus. And this is what Jesus says right here. Look at this. Jesus said, Simon, 
that's Peter's original name, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now watch, Jesus does this three times. Each time Peter says, yes, you know I love you, right? Because how can you say you love someone when you betray them, when you deny them? And he's asking Peter, do you really love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus says this, take care of my sheep. He reinstates his position as a leader among the disciples. And he says, then he said to him, follow me. He sees Peter at his worst and he calls out Peter's love for him. He's like, Peter, even though you denied me, I see your love for me. And he calls Peter back to his true self and to his purpose. Do you know God like that? Do you know him as a God who is looking for opportunity to be gracious to you, to bring you into his goodness? Or is your idea of God someone who's just waiting to bring the smack down on your life? Someone who's ready to point the finger at you? You see, when we don't have confidence in God's graciousness, we are not free to be honest about our sin. Because when you're constantly fearing judgment, you can't be honest. You can't be open and say, you know what, you're right. I was wrong because you're too afraid of getting put in your place. But when you know the graciousness of God, you can be honest about your faults because it's not condemnation waiting for you. It's restoration. God confronts us to have compassion on us. Do you know God like that? Jesus sees through our worst to our God-given potential. Has anyone ever done that for you? Can you think of a time in your life when someone saw you at your worst and held out hope in your best? Was it a spouse, a friend, a teammate, a coach? Maybe you made an own goal on the soccer field and the coach goes, no, but there's more than you than scoring on your own team. I see something in you. Can you think of a moment when someone saw you at your worst and called out your best? I remember when I was joining this in a varsity group right out of college, I wanted to go into ministry, and I felt like I was God's gift to this ministry. I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm going to confess some things. I wanted to go to medical school. I was pre-med, you know, big personality, and I thought, man, these guys would be lucky to have me. And I know I really felt that way, and so I applied. And the guy who was interviewing me looked at me, and he's like, you know, I see some stuff going on in your life, but you know what? I think we can make room for you. I'm like, what? You see some stuff going on in my life? And you, no, this is what he said. And you think you can make room for me? I was like a little bit miffed. I was a little bit offended, and I had to wrestle with that. I was like, I don't know. I just blew that. I blew that off and ignored it. And so then I went on staff with InterVarsity, became a campus minister. A year into my work, um, my parents went through a divorce. I went into a full-blown depression. And I asked, my, or my mentor, this guy who hired me, was the director of the ministry, took me out for a walk. He goes, let's go for a walk, man. As we're walking, he starts probing into my life, and pretty soon, I am just bawling my eyes out, and he's confronting the deep sadness and anger. See, what had happened was, I was holding in all this sadness so deeply that I was starting to become an angry person. And um, I was playing soccer as a minister with a bunch of college kids, and this kid just kicked me in the ankles really hard. And I literally pushed the kid and said, you want to go right now? And I almost started a fight with a college student. In Jesus' name, of course. That precipitated my mentor to say, we're going for a walk. And as we went for a walk, 
and my depression started to come out to the surface, I said, I don't know. I don't think I can stay with inner varsity now that I'm such a mess. And he's like, Ryan, I actually saw this a year ago, and I've been waiting for you to get honest about your life. See, you thought we needed you, but really you needed us. God sees up the worst in us, but he can see through it. And he can see who you were made to be as his daughter and as his son. That is God's compassion. I want you to think for a moment where in your life you need to have confidence in God's goodness for you. Sometimes it's a personal failure. Sometimes it's a difficult circumstance that can rob us of confidence that God is at work in our life with his goodness. I want to go to the second one. The second point is, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he, he relented. So he sees the whole truth about us, and he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had, had threatened. Now, the moment we turn to God, what I love about this moment is the moment you turn to God, God has to stop and think if you really deserve it. When you turn to God, God's got to wonder if you, how he counts how often you've been to church. When you turn to God, he counts how much time you spent in prayer. Hmm, I don't know. Look at this. I love this. Look at it right here. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their ways, he relented. When we turn to God, God immediately turns to us. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, we see what it looks like to turn to God. I want to talk about that for a minute because God wants to fill you with his compassion, but you've got to turn to him. So look at this. In chapter 3, verse 8, the king is so convicted by Jonah's, the king of the city, the most powerful, probably arrogant person in the city, says this, let everyone call urgently on God. Well, now you know God's moving when leaders start turning to God. Let them give up their what? Ah, you know, that's amazing that the king owns what God says about the city. See, when someone confronts us about brokenness or faults in our life, isn't it easier to get defensive? But the king owns it. He's like, you know what? I'm going to agree with God. God is right. He's calling this evil. I'm going to agree with him and say, God, you are right. We're caught up in some evil. And their violence, he confesses specifically the evil that God's calling out. Who knows, he says. God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his what? Yeah, God does have anger. We'll talk about that. His fierce anger so that we will not perish. We've got we to really look at this whole thing right here. Because the moment Nineveh turns to God, God relents and turns towards them. I want to talk about that word relent for a minute. Okay, let's go to the, the image with the mom. Yeah, yeah, right here. That word relent in the Hebrew is this word nehem. And what it means is it means to have compassion, to comfort, or to console. So when God relents, it's, he shows comfort and compassion. And what is so beautiful about this word is in Isaiah 66, 13, is another one of those moments where God is describing himself. Okay, God is talking about himself. So here he is in his own words. He says this. Let's read it out loud together. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. 
the moment we turn to God, God begins to turn to us to comfort, to restore, to strengthen, and to help us. Is there some area in your life right now where you need confidence that if you turn to God, he's going to come to you and comfort and strengthen your life? This imagery of a mother and a child is so strong that Jesus uses it when he talks about the way that God responds to us when we turn to him. I want to tell you about the parable of the prodigal father. Have you heard that story? Jesus is talking about this relenting idea, and it's in Luke 15. He paints a picture of a story of a father with two sons, the younger son and the older son. The younger son says to his dad, dad, I don't want to wait till you die. I want my half the inheritance, and I want to go to college and waste it on partying. (laughs) You can tell I did college ministry for 20 years. No, he doesn't go to college, but he goes off and he parties, and he wastes half of his family's inheritance. Get this. And then he hits rock bottom, and at that moment, he remembers his dad and how good he had it with his dad. Come on now, parents, aren't you loving this verse? I'm loving this story. Come on, kids. Um, And I want to read the moment the son turns back to his father, and he's starting to make his way back to his dad after having wasted half the inheritance. Look at this moment right here. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw, what? Saw, just like we're talking about with God in Nineveh, saw him and was filled with compassion for him. I love this part. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I met this student who was struggling with, she was um, from China. Uh, No, no, it was a young guy. A young guy from China. He was an exchange student at UCSD. We were sitting down with with another student that he lived with who was a Christian. And we were talking about Jesus. And we were talking about this story. And he goes, this is the hardest part for me to become a Christian. I'm like, God's love? He's like, yeah. That's the part I don't believe the most. I believe the miracles. I think that's possible. I was like, oh, God, I've never heard anyone say this. No, seriously, straight up, never heard anyone say this. He's like, it's that the Father kisses him and loves him like that. I think you can see where this is going. And I go, why do you say that? My dad has never, ever told me that he loves me. He has never kissed me in my whole life. I just can't believe that God is really like that. It is so hard to believe. We're going to see next week. Listen to this. It is so hard to believe in our heart of hearts that this is the truth about God, that he can see us at our worst and run to us the second we turn our hearts to him with love and compassion that Jonah, get this, you'll see it next week, calls it evil. The word that's used for Nineveh's evil is the word that Jonah's going to use next week to describe what God does right here. He goes, what you have done, God, is evil to forgive these people. That's how hard it is to believe. 
It's easy to believe when you got your six pack and you got your Instagram and you've got 200,000 likes, man. You're popping. Life is good, you know. You're looking good. But when we're, our worst is exposed, the whole truth, that's, it's hard to believe that God loves us like that. Well, good news, eventually that student did come to faith and came to take the most radical step of faith that God was willing to send his son Jesus to die on the cross out of love for him. And that's true for you. God's default position is to love and forgive us. But for God to do that, he's got to call out the areas of our life that are not aligned with him, which is why God's judgment and his love don't contradict. Sometimes when people start talking about God's judgment, the idea of hell, the idea that God is going to call our life into account, it just feels like, how does that line up with a loving God? How can God say he's loving yet judge? And I wanted to be very clear about that. It's the same way that it's not a contradiction of love when, or concern when a doctor diagnoses a patient. When a doctor diagnoses a patient, it's so that they can bring treatment. Because without a diagnosis, there's no treatment. God doesn't bring judgment, and judgment is bringing to light the whole truth about our life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And if we don't allow God to speak into our life where we are off path from him, and we take it offensively, and we take it like God's condemning us, and we can't let God in to speak to our condition, then he cannot heal us and free us. I'll give you a very personal example from my life that cuts to the core. Maybe you've heard this if you know me, my grandfather. My grandfather, my Latino side, man, my papa. This Manuel Ainsa, just lots of machismo, charismatic, good-looking, and an incredible golfer just a stud. He was a World War II vet, had worked on the submarines, had been depth charged, had lived. I mean, he was just a strong guy, a charismatic guy, larger than life. But when he got cancer, he refused to admit it. For over a year, maybe two, he had started to bleed in his urine. And my grandmother was begging him to go to the doctor to get treatment, but he refused to admit that he needed help. Now, this is personal. I'm not trying to cast shade on my grandfather, but I'm trying to use it as an example of something so important in our life. Sometimes we don't want to let God call something out because we're afraid of what might happen if we face the truth of it. And so we hide behind machismo and bravado. We hide behind, well, you know, different excuses, and we evade things because we don't want to let God call things, things out in our life because we're afraid if he exposes it, we're done for. And eventually my dad couldn't handle the pain, went to the hospital, the cancer had metastasized, and my grandfather did die. The worst part was when the doctor told my grandmother, if only you could have gotten him in here sooner. And it just broke my heart. But you know we're like that with God. God doesn't want to bring to light the areas of our life that are off path from him, what the Bible calls sin, because he wants to condemn us or just micromanage us. It's because he wants to realign us with his love for us. That's why God does it. Because to turn to God, you've got to turn away from other things. Because there's ways in which we have found substitutes for God in our life, even as believers. And to allow God to call us out 
means we have to be willing to face the things in our life that are, we've substituted for him. And I want to just show you an example. If you turn in your books, real quick, okay, just look at this real quick. I got, I got one minute. If you turn in your book to page 38, there's this little moment with Jonah, or jo- if you look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, listen to this moment. This is so profound. Jonah's in the fish at the bottom of the sea, and this is what he says right here in his most desperate moment. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love from that, for them. Let me read that again. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Our idols are the things that we cling to in place of God. When we turn to God, turning to God always assumes that there's something we have to turn from. Okay, I'll, give you, I'll show you how it is in this passage. Number one, ready? Um, the younger son has to turn away from parting. Nineveh has to turn away from their evil ways and their violence. Jonah has to turn away from rebellion, running from God, and we'll find out next week his hatred for Nineveh, his hatred for this people that he's threatened by. There's always, to turn from God, the reason why it's hard is because there's something in our life that we have to turn away from. Are you with me? Now watch. Where is that for us? What does that look like for us? Where is God realigning us with his love for him? I, want, I got some places that we might look into in our life. Number one, it might be turning from busyness to make room for prayer in God's presence in our life and turning away from the idol of what? Productivity, right? Because prayer is a waste of time. Are you with me? Prayer is the most unproductive thing you could do with your day. Are you with me? Come on, let's just say it out loud. Prayer is the most unproductive thing I could do. No, you don't want to say it. This morning, I got the whole room saying it. And I'm like, before you think I'm a heretic, I'm just giving voice to that feeling. Because if we really believe that the minute we turn to God in prayer for those areas of our life where we need him, that he is not walking but running to marshal his infinite resources on behalf of our need, don't you think our lives will look a little different? It's not because you're not a good enough person that you don't pray. It's because you don't believe enough in the greatness of God's compassion for you. That's why you don't pray. Because if you really believe that God is waiting to run to you to help you, you'd be praying. So it's turning from our busyness, because you know what? It's all up to us. How about this one? Turning from our difficult circumstances, taking our eyes off how hard things are for us, and putting our eyes in fresh faith on God and remembering all the ways he's gotten us out of sticky situations and he's not going to fail us this time. Or turning from an addiction and turning toward God in transparency and honesty about where we're struggling with God. Where is that place for you? Where are, is God inviting you this morning to turn to him? And God's saying, but you have to be willing to turn from something. What is that for you? Because when we turn to God, it doesn't save us, but it opens our life to receive God's compassion in that area. I want to invite the band to come on out. As the band comes out, I want to just invite you to reflect on where God 
where you need the help of God in your life. Maybe it's in the way that you talk to yourself, you view yourself. Maybe it's in some circumstance where you've gotten your attention off of him. The circumstance has gotten larger than him. And God is saying, come on, turn to me. And worship band, yeah, there they are. And let's just bring that to the Lord. Lord, I just pray as we go into this moment that you just open our ears, open our hearts to your presence. Where, God, you are ready and willing to run toward us. But you need us to turn to you. Before we go into a time of communion, if you have not received the elements, you can just raise your hand. You can be brave. Raise it real high so that they can see you and they'll bring you some. And right now, usually we have you stand and you're welcome to, but um, just for me, sometimes sitting and just reflecting and using this time to just rest before we enter communion can be really beautiful. So just feel free to do what you need to do. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King. do communion. Communion is the way Christians take a moment to remember the night that Jesus had his last dinner with his disciples. And on that, at that dinner, he explained the meaning behind his death that would happen within the next 24 hours. And um, if you are not a follower of Jesus, but this morning you want to surrender your life to him, you want to open the door to his compassion for your life and receive him as your savior, your Lord. The idea that God didn't just send Jonah to Nineveh. He sent Jesus to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is God's grace. That God wants to intervene and save us from living our life without him. Because if you live your life without God in this life, it becomes permanent. And so as you open your life to Jesus, 
It is the opening of God's compassion to bring you into relationship with God. It's not a condemnation. It's an elevation. You are created to live in relationship with your maker and creator. And that's why Jesus had to die. He had to make a way through our sin, through our evil, through our brokenness, a way for us back to God. If you peel off that top layer, you'll see a little wafer. This represents Jesus' body broken for us. I want to invite you right now in remembrance of Jesus, eat this in remembrance of Jesus' body broken to restore your brokenness to wholeness. And then he lifted up this cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. We drink this in remembrance that Jesus shed his blood to cleanse our life, not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us of sin in our life. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. God, I just pray now that you would fill us afresh with the depth, the breadth, the height, and the width of your compassion and love for us. That God, you intervene, you step in when you see us going off path to bring us back to you. And I pray this morning, anyone, God, for whom you are speaking to their heart, calling them to come back to you, to to come home to you, from any way in which they've been living without you, that God, they would just sense and hear your voice calling them back right now in Jesus' name. And if that's you, I want to invite you to come on up to the front. Do you have a prayer team? Yeah, we got a prayer team. Come on up. Let's, let us pray for you. If that's you and you sense God calling you home to him, tell a friend, tell someone you came with, a family member. You know what? I think it's time for me to renew my relationship with God. Just share that with them and invite them to pray for you today. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to go out in the goodness and the grace of God. Have a great week, and I'll see you tonight, 6 p.m. Have a good week, everybody.